0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally. To the renowned horror director,
1: writer, and producer... Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The world of horror is a fickle one. In a way, it's much like the top 40 pop charts of old, filled with one-hit wonders. The venerable masters of the genre, the filmmakers with long lists of memorable credits, are working less frequently. And there are but a few young directors who have made a name for themselves in the last few years. Think about it. How many horror directors from recent memory can you name who can bring in an audience on the strength of their own name? How many have developed a recognizable personal style that would entice you into the cinema? There are many talented young filmmakers in the genre, but damn few who become a recognizable brand, a name that you could rely on to deliver the goods. In my youth, hearing about a new movie coming by John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, George Romero, John Landis, Joe Dante, and many others would have me salivating for each opening Friday, and I'd be in line on opening day. Today... Not so much. James Wan has certainly made an indelible mark, but beyond that, let's talk a little about Mike Flanagan. Since he seemed to burst upon the scene with his shocker, Oculus, his star has risen greatly. He's now running up a list of credits, including Hush, a Ouija sequel, an upcoming Stephen King adaptation, and a Netflix series he's doing for Steven Spielberg based on the classic ghost story, The Haunting. Look for Flanagan's name to become one of those that makes you eager to see what he has up his sleeve. This is
0: Postmortem with Mick Garris.
1: So Salem, Massachusetts—what a place for a genre filmmaker to be from!
0: Yeah, uh, and and my stay there was very, very brief. You know, I, I was born there, and I have no conscious memory
1: of of being. There. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I thought you were going to be like a character from Hocus Pocus.
0: I, I try. Yeah, I aspire to be <laughs> yeah. um, always, always Dougie Jones. But um, but yeah, I I didn't really spend a lot of formative time there. Um, but I became fascinated by the history of Salem. Um, and as I grew up, especially knowing that that's kind of where I came from, I really got into the witch trials and and really started to research that. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten to visit, which has been really great. And it's such a such a wonderful place. And they first do Halloween time, really well.
1: The first time I went there was to do research for Hocus Pocus. So I went to all of these. I was there at Halloween and saw that the witches of Salem actually celebrate like an 11-day celebration climaxing on mm-hmm. Halloween night on Gallows Hill, where they do a candlelight ceremony, and so I went back like six years in a row to celebrate that and to watch it and to know that you were born there and uh, you don't have a cat named Thackeray Banks to you.
0: No, 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 not yet. That can be that can be remedied.
1: <laughs> so, were you a horror buff from childhood? Was the genre something that called to you? Um, I was. I was
0: terrified of horror as a kid. I, I really had a hard time. Uh, I would watch. Uh, I would watch things through my fingers and i remember the first time i saw thriller and i had to watch it from behind the couch um, so so most of my education with with you horror know i the
1: zombies in thriller
0: i did know that yeah, okay. yes mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> now um, everyone knows
1: <laughs> so yeah tell me about that experience
0: well it, it was really funny because a lot of my friends were really into horror and it was too intense for me to watch so i decided oh well i'll i'll go the other way i'll i was reading like john Belair's books and rl stein and christopher Pike and in fifth grade i graduated finally to stephen king and i thought that somehow that would be less traumatic reading his books <laughs> than watching horror movies and i was so wrong but I, I i was hooked and so i didn't really get into horror movies as a viewer until high school and college i mean i was way late on on the classics and by then i could i could watch them without having to cover my face which was which was a benefit um, <laughs> yes. but uh it was a kind of cathartic thing for me where a lot of these movies were. I'd seen even just the uh, in the video store, I'd seen the covers, and the covers had terrified me. And so finally, as a teenager, it was like, I'm going to finally watch Elm Street. I'm going to finally watch The Exorcist just to get through it and make sure that I can. Um, And then after that, I I was in love.
1: What was the one that hooked you, you think? The the one that you saw that went, oh, I get it. Oh, wow. Um,
0: Well, I mean, it depends on how you classify Jaws, I suppose. That works. Yeah, I, I think Jaws... Was one of the first ones that I watched when I was younger that that I really kind of grabbed onto. The first kind of very intense horror movie I saw that really traumatized me was actually Killer Clowns from Outer Space. <laughs> um, I couldn't deal with that movie. And really? It made me so uncomfortable. There, there, it was the scene where they're using the—I think it was the police chief as a ventriloquist dummy—and mm. I just couldn't, I couldn't handle it. The Kyoto Brothers. And it, yeah, and they had like the, the blood out of the corner of his mouth to give him that ventriloquist look, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't deal. Um, Did you
1: see it in a theater or was this on video? On, on video. Was it like was on cable, I yeah. think. Yeah. Right.
0: Um, and that was that was one of the most traumatic things that I'd seen. Um, and then as I got older and, and really kind of got into it, um, you know, I, re- I vividly remember going to a friend's house and watching a VHS recorded off of ABC copy of It, um, uh-huh. which I wasn't allowed to see. My parents said, you're not allowed to see that. And that was super scary. Uh, I had a poster for the stand up in my room for a number of years. Um, that was a that and remains a favorite of mine. Um, and uh, and then I think the first time I, I really saw what a horror movie could do, you know, outside of just the visceral experience, and I really started to understand more about the genre was the first time I saw Night of the Living Dead, mm. and and it occurred to me that the movie was about a lot more than zombies,
1: you know. Um, Right, that a movie could actually be about something more than just putting a hand on you and scaring you and saying boo.
0: Yeah, that, that it accomplished all of all of the, the scares and, and all of the nightmare fuel that I expected from the genre. But I, I was just finally at that age where I could look at it and, and be like, oh my God, this is actually trying to say a lot more just about our society. And that kind of opened my eyes to the idea that that the genre itself could kind of be this dark reflection of of our nature and where we are in the world, where we are as a, as a people, where we are as a country. And, and then I started to really kind of look at, at more sophisticated horror and kind of be like, I, even the movies I'd already watched as a kid that I'd kind of dismissed, not dismissed, but I had enjoyed as a viscerally frightening experience. Mm-hmm. I could then look at and be like, wow, there's actually some really radical and uncomfortable ideas in here and the genres, this, great delivery system for those ideas.
1: Is there something that emblemized that uh, perhaps the first one that, that had that feeling to you was David Cronenberg or jo- George Romero or John Carpenter or
0: oh, all of the above? I, I, um, you know, R- Romero, uh, and, and it's this is a, a sad, sad week to be talking about, yeah. about Romero, but um, yeah, I, I I went right from, uh, from Night of Living Dead to Dawn and was blown away. Um, with uh, Cronenberg, you know, I had seen The Fly, I think, hmm. when I had just gotten into high school. And that was another one where it, it affected me emotionally so much. And, and the, the practical effects of it, you know, the kind of disintegration and the degeneration of- Of, of
1: the Brundle Fly. The yeah. Brundle
0: Fly uh, was, was incredibly <coughs> difficult to watch. Um, but I also felt like it's a, this, this is also about something else. And I vividly remember the first time I saw The Thing.
1: Mm. John Carpenter's.
0: Uh, yes. And I, I remember not only just that intense feeling of paranoia and claustrophobia um, and the the incredible shock that I think still I, I still feel today when I watch what was accomplished with those effects. Um, but I, I remember being struck by the fact that it was like this is this could be a stage play. You know, this is this is a group of people in a contained environment where I'm getting the majority of the suspense that I'm feeling just out of the way they're interacting and their distrust of each other. And it was such a nihilistic movie. The ending was so down and and fascinating and perfect. And, um, yeah, that that really made quite an impression.
1: It was kind of amazing. I did the making of the thing, and so I was able to go up to the location uh, up in uh, British Columbia. And, you know, they scouted it in the summer, and shot it in the winter, where we're literally on glaciers and all that. And to be in the studio and watch Carpenter had had it refrigerated, so you see the real breath coming out of their mouths wow. as they're breathing. And to watch all these Rob Bottin creations that took forever to make and work, but um, to to see behind the curtain is something you kind of don't want, you know, in a way, just because to the tricks. You don't want to know the wires that are there, the yeah. latex that's piled up behind. But when you first started making short films, they weren't horror movies, were they? They no. were kind of social comedies oh, or, yeah. or, or drama, really.
0: They, in, in reality, they are comedies. I, I didn't know it until later. <laughs> they weren't intended to yeah, be. Yeah, <laughs> they certainly weren't intended to be. The, the first, I mean, the, well, the first, like the little movies I made in the backyard when I was a kid, uh, I did I did my version of The Untouchables. That was a hoot. Wow. Wow. Um, I, I did a, a completely unlicensed adaptation of uh, it in sixth grade uh, <laughs> in
1: sixth grade, sixth grade. That's that must've tw- been a long movie.
0: Oh, I think it was, it was 20 whole minutes. Wow. Yeah. And, um, man, was it, was it funny? Uh, and <laughs> then when I, when I got into into high school and actually really started to kind of to try to make things, uh, most of the stuff I did, I, I was trying to do these really deep relationship, you know, love kind of things. And in college, everything was about dating. I made three little digital features that were all about my thoughts at you know 19 about relationships and dating. And I thought I had so much to say.
1: <laughs> at and, a depth of experience. Yeah. I, just a
0: just a wealth of world experience that I that an audience needed to, to tap into. <laughs> and they were great for like me and my friends, and they were great learning experiences. And it wasn't until I got a little older and looked at them that I was like, oh my god. God, like these are unbearable. Um, <laughs> it's like the, it's, it's the 90 minute, you know, episode of Dawson's Creek. No one asked for <laughs> starring no one you recognize shot on mini DV.
1: Um, so did you have actual filmmaker friends or they were just your buddies who come over and hold this microphone for me here? Or were they actual cinema buffs like you were? Oh, uh, a lot of us, you know, were
0: in, in the very small uh, program at Towson University in Maryland, so we a lot of us were film students together. Um, I had some really wonderful mentors. Uh, one of my professors uh, was a guy named Steve Yeager, who had uh, just won a, a Sundance trophy for his documentary about John Waters, and, and he had kind of he had kind of dared everybody in the class uh, when we would talk about Jarmusch and, and we talk about you know Kevin Smith and Ed Burns and. He would say, you know, you can go out and make a feature for not very much money, you know, and if any of you guys come up with a script and you want to do it, like I would, I would support you. So he, he kind of kickstarted that for me, and I had a lot of support from, uh, uh, from the teachers there at Towson. Um, but, you know, there there isn't or there wasn't at the time. There wasn't much of a, a production presence in Baltimore, and. Right.
1: Other than John Waters.
0: Uh, other than John and and you know and Barry Levinson, you know, uh in his in his early career, but he had already kind of moved. Who left on. the diner world. Yeah. yeah. Um and so you'd have, you know, every now and then a production would come into town and the whole, you know, department would go crazy for a chance to be a PA on on something. And and I, I wanted to go off and do my own thing. So it was like I wanted to make these little ultimately unbearable you know college <laughs> dating movies. Um but I, I, I couldn't get it through my head for a long time that, that I wasn't doing it right. That, you know, um, commercial viability just had not occurred to me. And mm. I packed up my bag. I moved to L.A. with a bunch of other people from, from Maryland. We, we all shared a, you know, three-bedroom apartment in Glendale.
1: And you knew this was the career that you wanted, was to be a filmmaker. Is that why you came to L.A.? Yes.
0: Yeah. I, I, I knew that very, very young. Uh, but I had no idea what that meant. And I didn't know how to get there. You know, there was, there was kind of no obvious way in to the industry. And, and so a bunch of us moved out here and, and we tried, I, I worked as an editor for 12 years, which wow. turned out to be the, the best thing that ever happened to me. But, um, no idea what to do. And then when I finally got here, I was doing, um, I got a job, uh, shooting and editing those really terrible late night local car commercials you see <laughs> at like 3am and I was doing those and, uh, just really kind of frustrated and that uh, they had they had camera equipment, and so I was like you know I've, I've always loved horror movies whenever I go to blockbuster it's like that's where I go first I go to the horror section um why don't I try finally to kind of get out of this you know quit trying to make the collegiate American beauty and try to go off and like really scare people because that's what I, I like to watch and and so we took um we I got my employer to give me you know, a, a tiny DV camera package for the weekend. And, and I think there were eight of us, uh, a bunch of friends who we went off and, and shot the short that would be, that was Oculus. Um, and that was in 2005. So and that was originally,
1: time. you originally, you were intending to do that as a web series of shorts.
0: Yes. Yeah. We, we were really ambitious about it. We thought we could do one of those every few months and we had nine of them outlined. I was like, Oh, this will be great. This will be just a collection an anthology about this mirror. And, uh, we were so cocky about it that we shot the first script, You know, we, we, I think we'd written four treatments for it, and we shot the one that had a history section, which was the third one we'd written. So we called it uh, chapter three, even though none of the other ones had been made. <laughs>
1: That's pretty clever, actually. Well, I, I thought,
0: it, it was like we were, I don't know if, we, if, if I thought we were going to do like a Star Wars thing, or it would really catch on, and right. if we did it out of order, it would be awesome. But it was the only
1: one we ever made, so it got really confusing and, mm-hmm. and kind of embarrassing. Um, and I, it went to a lot of festivals and things and, and got a lot of attention. This and Ghosts of Hamilton Street?
0: Yeah. That, well, Tell Go- me a little bit. Yeah. Was
1: that first Ghosts?
0: That was. That was back in two thousand three, I think. Um, and Ghosts was the third of my college uh college
1: romance. Oh, so it was a thesis movie. Yeah, yeah. It it
0: had um it did have a, a supernatural element in that like the story of it was that this guy uh, who's, you know, really kind of at rock bottom or what a 21 year old's idea of rock bottom is wakes up one morning and then everyone in his life starts to disappear. And when they mm-hmm. disappear, the world resets around him as though they never existed. And so it's kind of this twilight zone thing. Um, but I didn't take any advantage of, of the genre for it at all. And, and so it turned into this very kind of so melodramatic. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, and it was funny because it had the word ghosts in the title. Right. we
1: were like, great, ghosts. You expect, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was
0: like, nope, there are none. But there are, <laughs> there are a lot of lengthy monologues about, you know, dating. and.
1: But did it not 20s. get some attention at festivals? And it things? did. It got some good play, right? It
0: did. Uh, that, one did that, that one did okay. And, and, you know, it started, it won a couple of awards uh, at some of the, the smaller and kind of mid-level fests. And then, but that
1: had to have given you confidence to move forward.
0: It did. I, I had felt when, when I would look back at the movie that, you know, there, there was definitely growth there, especially from the other two, which I don't, you know, even even like to acknowledge. <laughs> they'll exist. never
1: be on the Blu-ray. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I,
0: I, did, I just tried to scrub them off the Internet um, <laughs> when things started to work out. Uh, but it, it had definitely shown a little bit of growth. And, and kind of what struck me about it was that I, I was like, if I really could have leaned into the genre um i could have told the same story like i could have gotten the same point across that i wanted to get across but i think people would have been more interested in it more
1: if it engaged. was kind of yeah,
0: yeah if it was wrapped in uh in a really engaging you know genre package and and so that was kind of an aha moment um where it's like i you know i can still talk about things that are very important to me but i can do it in a way that's actually very entertaining um instead of just kind of like i'm going to put a camera in front of in front of my friends and have them right. talk about love and life, which is rough to...
1: But making a horror film is not so easy to just decide, well, I'm going to make a horror film that'll be more engaging and more... Oh, not uh, at all. ...interesting, yeah. because to me, a good horror film has to be a good drama first. Yes, 100%. So uh, the writing, the acting, and all of that, it has to be a good drama. And on top of that, you have to use the tools of the genre to create tension, suspense, and, and really get an audience to grip the, the, the rails. Right.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and that was something I, I learned a little backwards. Um, but it, it eventually became, you know, I, I agree with you 100%, it, for a hundred percent for a, good horror movie to really function, you have to be able to remove all of the genre elements and it should still be able to stand up on its own. The characters need to, to be real and three dimensional and the movie must function as a drama. And so that that's become the litmus test that I, I try to embrace now. Um, but yeah, it, I, I came at it in a very roundabout way. It mm-hmm. took me a lot longer than, than it really should have.
1: Well, I, for me, a big open door for that, uh, was reading Stephen King. Yes. And I know that you've had a similar experience, but, um, what was the first King book that you read? It was it. Really?
0: Yeah. It was right in the fire. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, right yeah. It right
1: was, uh, man.
0: And, and it, it messed me up, um, <laughs> in, in a wonderful way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, then I just started, I, I went completely out of order. I was just kind of all over the place with it. Um, and I, I think I picked up skeleton Crew next mm. and, mm. and started, you know, kind of diving into the short stories. And by the time I graduated college, I'd read everything. So like right. then I'd finally caught up I'd saved the dark tower for toward the end. Cause I knew it was so sprawling and it wasn't finished yet at the time. Right. We got eight books here. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, you know, he's as as you're, you know, uh, so wonderfully aware You know, <laughs> is that uh, what he accomplishes with his characters and the way the horror is kind of born so organically out of them, you know, is, is a is an amazing thing. I would cry reading Stephen King books. And yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and there are some that have burrowed so completely kind of into my heart and in my mind to this day that, you know,
1: it, yeah, I think the lesson. power of his storytelling, and we'll get into that, I th- I want to kind of follow the trajectory of your career because it's a fascinating one that is building and building and building in, in ways that I identify with because not only because of some of the people that we've both worked with or are working with, but just from... Going from a small movie, uh, Absentia was crowdfunded, right? Yeah. Starting with a Kickstarter campaign. Yes, Tell sir. me how that came together. That wasn't something that was available to us when I was beginning my filmmaker career.
0: Oh, and, and it was brand new when we did it. Uh, it was still, I think Kickstarter was just coming out of their beta testing uh, phase. Wow. And um, we we had wanted to, you know, it was again me and, me and my friends, and I was working as a full-time editor, Um, And I'd been trying to get interest in an Oculus feature for years and there would either be interest and people would say, oh, um, we want it to be a found footage movie because there are cameras in the room and I didn't want to do that or they just wouldn't let me direct it and – they're like, you haven't done a horror feature. So I, I, would, I finally got to the point where I was like, I need to do a horror feature. No one's going to give me one, so I need to just make one. And initially, there was this thought uh, with with my friends that like, we could do this for $10,000, $15,000, which was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. um, and one of uh, Justin Gordon, who uh, produced on the movie and played one of the detectives, had seen a tweet. Um, and Neil Gaiman was talking about Kickstarter. Uh-huh. He, had, he had just backed a, a project. And so Justin went over and, and checked it out and brought it to me and he said, look, you can actually raise some money this way. And I thought it was ridiculous. I was like, why on earth would anybody give you money to go make a movie and you're not, they're not getting any, it's hard enough to talk people into investing, you know, when there's a chance of, you know, little chance, but a chance of a return, they're just going to give you the money. Uh, and he said, well, yeah, but it comes in very small increments and I was mm-hmm. like, okay, well that's, that sounds even more impossible. <laughs> um, and we, we gave it a shot and I think we wanted to raise 15 grand in a month and we, we ended up raising 25 oh. and, um, and that became our production budget. And so the movie, I mean, it didn't, it didn't cost much to make cause we shot it in my apartment. We used a Canon 5d, which was also like just breaking out onto the, onto the scene. And we used available light, you know, tiny crew. Uh, so we hammered it out in 15 days. Amazing and the hope was it would be a a calling card that i could give with the oculus treatment um to try to get the job but there wasn't any expectation that we'd release the movie it was just meant to be kind of a, an extended reel and um and the you know we we submitted to some festivals just to see how it would go and and the movie ended up doing really well for itself and and we we sold it which was shocking mm-hmm. it's like for you know, Three really, really awful uh, character dramas later, it's like we finally the, – the, the goal was always we can sell a movie. And it's like it right. finally just happened with this, with this one.
1: And it was a genre film. And it was.
0: And, and it was a genre film that was also very personal to me. And um, it was like, yes, this is what's, what's going to work. Like this is what feels the most rewarding for me is, is how can I kind of make something that I think is fun and scary but also means something to me. And, right. and that was that was the first time in all those little experiments that kind of led up to that that was the first time I felt like it it worked
1: and it did act as a great calling card because it led to finally oculus becoming a feature
0: it did uh, almost immediately actually wow yeah wow um off of off of absentia because uh, I when my, when I finished the movie I'd had managers over the years that had come and gone and nothing had ever you know nothing had ever really happened and I came out of the shoot for Absentia without any representation, and I was still editing all day. And um and I got uh, a lawyer hmm. out of it um from one of the Kickstarter donors who who oh, an entertainment oh, right. lawyers who's, uh. who's still my lawyer um and is wonderful. And he introduced me to a manager and they introduced me to an agent, and they set me up on uh my first general meeting coming out of Absentia it was at uh, Intrepid Pictures uh with Trevor Macy. Uh, and Anil Carrion and and Mark Evans and they ended up they produced Oculus. So they
1: saw what you had. Had you completed the feature script and you were pitching that? I had a treatment. Right. And um so it was a development deal first to write the script and then it moved along a step deal.
0: Yes. And it was funny because, you know, I I got to join the writers' guild off of that scale deal. Um did the script and there was still this anxiety the entire time that the movie doesn't mean the movie was going to happen. Right. You know, um, and I wouldn't quit my day job and of editing. Yeah. And so I'd be editing. I was cutting a lot of reality TV at the time. Uh, like what? Oh man, uh, the shows! I, I did a little bit of time on RuPaul's Drag Race. That was really fun. There you go. Did a bunch for the Discovery
1: Channel. Um, <laughs> did Million Dollar Listing. The secret side of Mike Flanagan.
0: Oh yeah, and it was. I I was so like I was in these little cutting rooms, you know, at these companies, and it's like all I wanted to do was get out there and, and make movies, but um, but it turned out to be the best the best skill set I ever developed.
1: Well, figuring out how to make story out of footage and putting it into, into some kind of narrative shape that had to be invaluable for you. Oh yeah. Especially from the documentary sense, the reality show sense.
0: When a lot of them, there is no story. They say, you know, here's a pile of footage. You better, you have a week to find the story. And if there's not one there, you better make one. So in that case, it sounds
1: like you were directing it as much as you were editing it.
0: Well, oh, we had you know, uh, story producers who would come in and kind of say they were they were there for the shoot, and they would come in and say, "We think we can make a moment out of this mm-hmm. or we can manufacture this." and And it was it's so fast paced in that world. you know you have to just deliver your cut. Um, and that ended up being it made me a better writer. It made me better on the set. It, it, it's helped everything. but I, I remembered when we were in pre-production on Oculus, and I still didn't know for sure if it was going to happen. Um, I would sneak out for these long lunches from from my job and I would race down to Santa Monica and do casting sessions and then come back ninety minutes late from lunch to my <laughs> job and try to come <laughs> up with an excuse so I wouldn't get fired and lose the only income I had <laughs> yeah. um until it became impossible to sustain them both and I mean, you know how how it goes in prep where you can be moving. And you think a movie's going to go, and it can die on the vine at any time. So often, so often. Uh, you know, every every movie is a little miracle, you know, just to get made. And and uh, so I would, I, I finally hit that breaking point where my my job was fed up, and the movie needed more of my attention, and I didn't know if it was really going to go. And I finally had to quit my job and just. kind of So that of was go the commitment.
1: It. Yeah, it was a decision. Yes, and it was a dangerous decision, but danger is of no value when there's something you're passionate about. Yeah. And, and
0: it, and it, it was the right move and it, and Definitely. It, I, I was lucky it, it, it worked out. Um, but if it hadn't, I would have found, you know, something else to edit. But I, I, I had a feeling at that point that I'd given myself five years when I moved out to LA to, to try to get my foot in the door and that had come and gone twice, you know? Wow. And there was, there was a real sense that if if it didn't work soon, um, at a certain point, I was going to be irresponsible if I kept trying at it instead of focusing on stability and family and uh so that it you know it all kind of came together at almost the last minute i think i, I don 't think I could have done another few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just the realities of adulthood would have gotten in the way
1: but here you make your first feature. And it turns out to be not only financially successful, but critically successful. People like the movie, which is not often the case within our genre. And it's successful, and it's an independent picture. I don't know what the budget was, but um, on Oculus it was, um, I think, it was six. And yeah. it did like eighty domestically, or something.
0: Oh, oh no, we weren't we weren't quite that successful. I think we did um, uh, domestic, we did thirty five, and then I think we, probably, okay. we I think we did another twenty internationally. Okay. But, okay. It, but for for the budget, it was... That's a big great. success.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what Sleepwalkers did when it, it first came out in, in 92. It did 30, 35, something like that. But in $92. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that's
0: pretty fantastic. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, um, but it was a studio picture, a very low-budget studio picture. But so But this had to have opened things up for you in a big way. You now had an agent and a manager and a lawyer, right? Yes. And they were able to parlay this. What was the next step? It was, it was kind of awesome uh, we had, we, while I was waiting to see what would happen
0: with Oculus my writing partner and I had written this script called Somnia that we'd been kicking around as a spec for years um, and that became uh, Before I Wake which is the movie that, that is still tragically I'm eager to talk about here, but, that too um, but uh, what, what happened was they my reps started to take the script out and Trevor and Intrepid having just kind of come off of the experience of, pr- of production for oculus we'd had such a good experience mm-hmm. um said you know let's let's just do that right away and so a year after we'd wrapped um oculus we were on set shooting somnia it was just Real, crazy oh, to me because okay. that movie still isn't out but um i see it's yeah.
1: on canadian blu-ray it is yeah. <laughs> I, I
0: ordered like 10 of them
1: oh, when I it hits there
0: uh, nice. it was the only way i could get it Um, but yeah, it's also it's all it's all sorts of places. I wish it wasn't, but I'm really grateful they did the Blu-ray because I can it plays in the U.S. players. So,
1: well, let's talk about that. This was a deal with Relativity that came. uh, Was it in conjunction with the other production company you had done Oculus for?
0: Yeah. So you know, Intrepid. Intrepid produced Oculus, and Relativity ended up acquiring it at Toronto. Right. Um, And then Intrepid also produced. Uh, so then it was called Somnia um, independently and Relativity came in and said look we don't want this to go out you know to anyone else but we'll take it now um, right. we were just starting post and they. it was a great deal and it was you know big that wide release and coming off of what they did with Oculus it was like this is going to be great and so we sold the movie to Relativity and, and uh, we had a release date and we were all set and I moved on to the next project and you know was just. I remember at one point it looked like Oculus. I think came out in April of that year, and it looked like uh, uh, Before I Wake would come out that fall. It was like two wow. theatricals in the same year. Nice. Um, and then things just got weird. Uh, it, it just everything kind of stalled, and we weren't getting trailers and posters and materials. And it, it was kind of caging. Was this
1: because uh, relativity was collapsing at that time yes. or it was something unrelated?
0: Uh, we didn't know it at first, but it was because of the, the collapse. And and um, I don't know if everyone at relativity knew what was going on in the beginning. Right. Um, and so they moved it off the date and they didn't really have a good reason. And they they didn't ask us to change anything
1: which mm. was odd. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, well, it, you know, are we reshooting? Are we, you know? Yes,
0: it's not testing
1: well, so we got to go yeah. out and do some reshoots, but nothing like that.
0: And it had tested, it was testing better than Oculus ever tested. Wow. Like we were, we were in a really good place, we thought. And then it was just like, no, we're just, you know, we need to kind of get some ducks in a row. And we just couldn't get these materials. So it's like, well, where's the marketing materials? And we eventually found out that a lot of the vendors had cut them out because they had too, many, uh, too much debt. Mm-hmm. And so the vendors weren't turning materials over.
1: So Relativity was an independent company, but it was very large. I mean, yes. they did giant feature co-productions with the studios. Big time. So this was a relatively small size production for them, but the kind of movie that they'd done so successfully before.
0: Yeah. And, and it seemed like we had a very healthy P&A budget and it was all going to work. Um, and then we started to really learn about how much trouble the company was in. Um, and they finally kind of came to us, and it was like, yes, um, you know, we're we're going to file Chapter Eleven. Oh, great! But we we're confident we're going to pull out of it. But you know, they they pushed the date back twice at that point, and we had had international buyers that had picked it up based on the wide release commitment in the states, and so we kicked and screamed and you know shook our fists, but there was no choice but to kind of wait it out and hope that they emerged from bankruptcy and would pick up where they left off and do right by the movie. But it took years.
1: And this was the movie you wanted to make. It had yeah. not been peed on by the studio. And you're proud of it. You, you wrote the script. You directed it. And it came out the way you wanted to. Yes. It was not compromised. And nobody's been able to see it.
0: No. And, and the, the funny thing is it's a, strange, it's a strange movie. And we knew it when we, when we went to make it. It's a hard movie to classify because it's not, uh, it's not straight horror. And it's, it's more like a, like a fairy tale. And, um, mm-hmm. it's a gentle movie and, and, uh, we knew that that was going to be challenging, but then the perception of the movie kept getting, uh, worse as dates would come and go and it would get pushed. And there was this assumption that something must be rotten with it. Right. Um, and we could say all day long that it's like, no, there's a problem at relativity, but it didn't really land. And, um, the funniest part about it, just to kind of, just to see how little it's changed. Um, You know, we had this young actor in the film who hadn't done a big movie uh, before named Jacob Tremblay. And uh, he was seven when we shot. And we thought we've just made this incredible discovery. This kid is amazing. And we were in post on it when we heard that he was up for this movie called Room. And we shared some footage to try to help him out. Um, And then Jacob just exploded. Right, just exploded. And he's probably the most recognized and respected child actor out there right now. And he's just doing huge, huge movies. And I saw him at the Oscars and it's just like, my God, Jacob, this is amazing. (laughs) Um, We still, to this day, have in our closing credits of that movie, introducing Jacob Tremblay, which right now, we can't even open up the movie to change that, which would be incredibly embarrassing to Uh kind of... And introducing this kid is <laughs> like Ten amazing films <laughs> yeah. that you've
1: all seen. Is there any hope that we can see a release of the film? Uh, I, I, mean, a theatrical release?
0: I, I don't know. Is 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 the honest answer? I, my suspicion, and and I'm just speaking for myself, is is that the theatrical options pretty well burned at this point? Um, you know, our international distributors waited for a while for Relativity, but then a lot of them just started releasing it. Mm. and so it got pirated very quickly mm. it ended up online very quickly right um and then we had this kind of wave of uh it, it started from um from foreign journalists we'd have these wave of of uh, negative reviews that came in mostly criticizing the movie for not being a horror movie and being mm. marketed as one. yes i well. um, i think we only have like 13 reviews but it's You know, it hurts me every time I go to Rotten Tomatoes and look at it because it's just like all the other movies seem fairly represented, and then this one's just like slammed. And so, between between those reviews and um, and the fact that it's been so exposed online, I'd be very surprised if, after all these years, somebody wanted to take a, a shot at it theatrically. But would you say this was
1: a personal movie for you? Very much. Yeah.
0: And and it was my it was my favorite. Uh, at the time it was my favorite of, of all of the, Jeff and I had written like 15 scripts together before, you know, we were, we were trying to pedal specs for so long before it, it actually worked.
1: Well, that's um, the, my favorite. the most painful part is, yeah. you know, when people don't know, when they, exp- they anticipate one kind of movie and you're not allowed to have any part in the presentation yeah. of the film through its marketing or whatever. Um, for me, the most personal movie I've ever done is riding the bullet mm-hmm. and the maybe the least misunderstood or maybe just the least liked. I don't know. But, um, you know, it was sold as a horror film, a flat out horror film. And it is that. But it's also a little more contemplative and a little more about a personal growing up experience.
0: Well, and, and it's a move to me anyway. It was it was always a, a beautiful movie about contemplating the mortality of a parent. You right. know, and, yeah. and everything served that, you know, which isn't, that's not something you can put up on a poster no. and hook the genre audience. But, uh, but I, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's a certain level of, um, you can poison expectations in trying to kind of reach a, a larger market right. uh, in, if you, if it's not marketed just right. Um, and, uh, I think there's also a tendency for people, especially when movies are very personal to a filmmaker, it, it just makes it more likely that a certain amount of, of the viewership will misunderstand it. And, mm-hmm. and that's... that's
1: tough. You hope that when you make something personal, that it's universal. Yes. That you tap into emotions that everyone will share. And when that doesn't happen, especially if they're misled into what kind of movie they're to expect. So tell me what the expectations were and how they were at cross purposes with the movie you were trying to to the story you were telling
0: oh sure uh the story that i was telling was uh, a fable uh about the way the different ways that children and adults deal with death um and it, it was about it started as a, a movie about a couple trying to come to terms with the death of a child years uh, before off screen and it ended as a movie about a little boy coming to terms with the death of his mother um and how they heal each other uh it was marketed. It was called Somnia because Somnia is Latin for dreams. And, um, you know, his, in, in the movie, his, whatever he dreams about manifests physically in, in the space around him, which is beautiful and lovely until he sees a photograph of uh, his new adoptive parents, dead child. Mm. Um, and they are sitting in the living room and this image, this smiling, static image of their dead child appears. And so they, start after they realize what's happening they start to show him home movies so he can hear the voice and incorporate the voice and they start to kind of rebuild this kid in the mind of this new one and it's a it's rough it's sad um and so they wanted to change the title first because they thought everyone would either think insomnia right. or, um, or that it just sounded sleepy in Latin you know <laughs> um, and uh, so they went with before I wake which I did not like um, and I thought it was a it was a title that you know, it just begs you to fill in the blank and write right. this, if I die you know which is not the movie. Um, and then the marketing materials, you know the the poster was this kind of bloody butterfly and and the trailer really leaned on the horrific elements and there, there are moments of horror in it because the kid like any eight year old has nightmares um, but it was really pushing everyone to believe this was this kind of fantastic um, like dark. Uh, nightmare experience, and it really isn't. It's this very light, kind of bittersweet, quiet movie. Um, but it's painful as well, it sounds like. Very much, yeah. Uh, it's it's the kind of thing I remember when I was sending the, the script out to even potential crew members, my production designer called um, when we, we had wanted him to do the movie, and he said, I have a lot of questions about the creative, but the biggest one I want to ask is, do you have children? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes. And he said, I assumed you must... And if you didn't, I wouldn't do this movie. Um, but that, as a parent, it ripped. It ripped into a place, you know, with, uh, with him that was really tough to look at. And um, I had kind of likened it to—this um, is not a, a good tonal reference—but I had likened it to like my riff on *Pet Sematary*, mm-hmm. um, which was a, a book that just grabbed me by the heart.
1: Um, I agree with you. (laughs) uh, What is it about wanting to, one of the hardest things to do as a filmmaker is to create the feeling of shared pain. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm not going to say it's easy to scare somebody. It's easy to make somebody jump. But fear is something you can share and instill and it's universal. But there's something about experiencing pain as an adult and the the memory of pain as a child, and getting that across, and I think that's something we 'll talk about in the world of Stephen King that he does so well so well, yeah. so brilliantly and I really enjoy watching an audience spill tears it's easy to become mawkish it's easy to become artificial or overly sentimental, but to share genuine emotional. Pain is something that's rare in the movies. I think Mystic River was an uh, unexpected place to get it from a director like Clint Eastwood. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you approach that.
0: Well, it was, um, I, I knew that it, it was affecting me very much as we were writing the script. Like I, I would get very emotional just working on the script with Jeff. I had wanted to try to tap into something I assumed would be universal, um, which is, you know, at least among parents that the the very idea of something happening to your child is, is your, your mind rejects it. You know, it's so hard to look at. How old are your kids? Uh, I have, I have a, I have two sons. One is almost seven, uh, and the other is eight months old.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, and, uh, and you know, they, they radically changed my life and, and, um, this script, you know, really kind of came to life after my, my first son was born and, um, I always looked at the movie as, you know, kind of a simultaneous nightmare for parents, but also uh, something that was meant to bring some kind of comfort and some kind of, some kind of uh, peace to the idea of, of what, you know, would happen if, if you lost a child and how, how families have to heal, um, which is, of course, you know, the worst possible way to try to pitch.
1: Uh,
0: a movie <laughs> yes. to, uh, to get it supported financially, but...
1: From the director of Oculus. Yes.
0: yes. Comes, you know, bring a box of tissues, <laughs> here's... Uh, but but that's what it was for me. It was really special, and, and I had really hoped that coming off the momentum of Oculus, even though it was such a different animal, that that would kind of help prop the movie up. Um, and unfortunately, because of the meltdown of its distribution, you know, intentions, it... Uh, I feel like that that movie's just been kind of left adrift, you know. And um, it was something that you know the cast that that was the that was when I worked with uh, Annabeth Gish. Hmm. Uh, we talked about you quite a bit. Um, oh, I love Annabeth! Isn't Beth. she the best? Yeah, we
1: just finished working on a project that we've not yet announced, but, ooh, ooh, uh, ooh, ooh. but I, I, she's so great in it and she's so, marvelous yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the third time i've worked with her she also was in bag of bones
0: and and, and desperation, desperation. Yeah. yeah so
1: she's um, amazing
0: yeah i, I and such a joy to have
1: yeah on the set. Um, which is why we've worked together three <laughs> <yeah>. times
0: <laughs> you, you got to keep those people close it's <laughs> you not do. it's not
1: always the case between her and matt frewer i mean more than and henry thomas you know? henry, Yeah, henry um yeah I, I i just did two with
0: henry and about about to do Another one that <laughs> you can't I talk about. It, yeah. 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 But, uh, but yes, Henry's one of my favorite humans.
1: Just love yeah. him. Yeah. Um, but, such a great
0: guy to work with. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it was a really, you know, we, we all felt it while we were working on it that it was weird and strange and unique, but fragile and sweet. And, you know, the, the biggest compliment I've, I've ever felt with it is when people who have seen it overseas or even, even the people who have seen it online will get in touch and say, you know, they called their mother. They were crying. You know, they didn't expect a movie like this to get to them that way.
1: That was the greatest thing that happened after, you know, writing the bullet barely was released in three cities with no advertising. Mm. And, um, when, you know, it's about having lost one of my parents and one of my brothers at the time. Even though it's a Stephen King story, that's about a third of the movie. Yeah. And uh it turned into something about very much what your film was about and getting letters from people who talk about, you know, I just lost my mother recently and I saw this movie and it brought me some solace. That's what more can you ask for yeah. and, and that, as a filmmaker?
0: That helps, I think too, that helps you deal with, you know, it, it helps you deal with the misunderstandings and it helps you deal with the other side of our, you know, yes. the, 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 perceived failure, you should yeah. never read, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. but you can't help yourself. <clears throat> yes. Um, it is when you do get those things. It's like, yes, this, this hit someone in the heart exactly the way that I hoped it would. And it, it's, a, it's something that me and at least this viewer share. Right. You know? And if yeah, it doesn't that, hit everybody.
1: It makes it worthwhile because yeah. if you give credence to the good reviews, you have to do it to the bad ones as well. Yes. And yeah. hopefully learn something from those during the process, unless they're just shitting on you. Right. <laughs> which,
0: but, <laughs> which will happen too. But, that does. Yeah.
1: So you followed this up with Ouija or origin of evil.
0: Oh, in between we did Hush. Hush was right. Oh, so yeah, Hush, right Hush in the
1: was be- before that.
0: Yeah, we yeah. did. It was. I think we were still dealing with the relativity
1: fallout. You do back to back movies, Mike.
0: Jesus, I can't. I can't sit still. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't choose to or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and Hush was funny because it was like this little secret movie. We didn't tell anybody. about
1: Yeah. It. What was the secret? Why? Um, why was it under the radar?
0: Well, initially, you know, uh, Kate Siegel, who wrote it with me and starred in it, and is now my wife. Um, you know, we, we had come up with it on a, on a date. Oh, wow. And as something for us to write together and for her to star in, but we knew that that was going to be a really hard sell. And I was really into it because I wanted to do a movie without dialogue or at least mostly without dialogue. Um, So it was, it was always a little experimental in Kate's casting. We knew was going to put an immediate ceiling on the budget. Um, And so when we, it was Trevor again and intrepid and Jason Blum uh, co-produced. Right. And, uh, and once once we were, you know, going on it, it's like they were like, okay, well, this could be risky. We don't know how it's going to play out without the dialogue, and and that could go one way or another. And we have kind of an untested, you know, uh,
1: lead here. Mm-hmm. We don't know if she can carry the whole movie. So kind of a chance that it may not see a th- theatrical release.
0: Yeah, wh- which
1: Blumhouse often will do directly to
0: video. Oh yeah, I think you know they they they're so prolific over there. They have they have you know avenues to kind of put their movies out in any number of ways um but i mean i think we all looked at it initially as if this really fell on its face you know for it was a million dollar movie it was like if it mm-hmm. falls on its face uh we'd prefer no one knew about it <laughs> right so right. there there was this sense of like let's see how it goes and then we can announce it and it'll just be a surprise mm-hmm. um and uh, so we went off and, and did that um very very quickly i think in 2015 we shot that and and then how many days shoot 18. Wow. Yeah. It was it was 18 days. It's like a nineteen
1: eighties TV movie.
0: And <laughs> uh, it, it was all nights. It was oh, six Christ. day weeks, night for night. Oh, it was how brutal. Yeah. Um but we loved, you know, I, I love that movie and and we finished it and it was like, this is you know, this is cool. And we tested it and it was testing better than the others, and it was like great. Um and so then we got to kind of be like, surprise everybody, we've yeah. been working on this movie. And, and, uh, the, the intention was to go theatrical if we could. Um, but Netflix came in so aggressively for it. Really? Yeah. Um, they're and, the big player now. They are. They're, uh, it's, it's amazing. And, and I initially was like, I don't want to give up a theatrical <clears throat> component. We just work so hard right. on the movie. Um, but more people saw that movie in the first two days that it was on Netflix, then I think would have seen it if it had gone theatrical.
1: Interesting, because Netflix has become a big part of your life. Big time. <laughs> big yeah.
0: time. And, and, I, and I haven't left since. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Except for Ouija.
1: Ouija, yeah. uh, Origin of Evil. So doing a sequel is fraught oh, yeah. <laughs> with everything. You know, you, you want to deliver what people expect, but you don't want to do the same movie over again. You want to bring something new to it. So what was that tightrope that you walked I, I
0: was fortunate in one respect, which was that the first Ouija movie had not been well received. You know, it, it financially did really, really well. Right. Um, but the movie and everyone who worked on it, you know, will say the same that like the movie had a lot of issues. Um, and so, uh, Blumhouse and Universal and Hasbro and uh, Platinum Dunes—I mean, big. It was big people. Uh, on it, they were very aware of that. And and they, from the beginning, were like, we don't want to, we don't want to go down the same roads that gave us problems on the first one. We'd really like this to be something different.
1: The Parker brothers also from Salem, Massachusetts, right? Yes. That's <laughs> um, okay. yeah.
0: And, uh, and so they said, we, we look, we, we know what, you know, we heard everybody loud and clear. Like they were really aware, even though it had performed financially, they were aware of, of a lot of the, you know, the, the horror fans reactions to it. And so, um, coming in with a lower creative bar, Uh, was kind of freeing because it was like, well, we don't even have to worry about trying to recreate too much from this first movie. Let's try to do something completely different. And um, I had initially not wanted to do it Mm -hmm. Uh, when when it was first brought up. It was like, I don't want to do a sequel. I'm I'm scared of what that could, what that could mean. Uh, And, you know, um, I was talked into it very effectively, very early because it was clear to me that they legitimately wanted to do something fun and wanted to kind of turn the tide that, that, uh, that they were perceiving the first movie was, that they well.
1: paid attention to the criticism, which is surprising.
0: Uh, Jason in particular is really responsive to that. He, he listens to his audience and um, he was the first to kind of stand up and be like, you know, I, I think he said it uh, when we were doing press, he would say it a lot. He would say the first Ouija was not our finest hour. Um, but of course we set out to try to give you this really cool movie we've heard what you had to say and we're thrilled that you guys supported the movie so much that it makes a sequel viable so let's try to you know let's try to do it differently and uh it it, it ended up being one of my favorite shooting experiences oh great and um and I, a big hit and incredibly well received as well it 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 remains my most critically successful movie um which uh i never would have thought going you know when, when it first kind of came on across my desk um, but it was so much fun to do. It, the, the cast was incredible. We got to play with, you know, these... We, we shot the movie on these old antique lenses. And, wow. And I would come in and say, like, I don't want to just put it up on cam. I want to do a lot of, like, manually operated zooms. <laughs> give me a split diopter. And, you know, I really want this to feel like the movies I remember watching growing up. And at every turn, when I thought there would be, you know, like, Universal wouldn't back this, they were all really excited. And even, you know... We we artificially added cigarette burns, cigarette? <laughs> yes. uh, to uh, uh, to it just because it, it was just such a kind of integral part of, of my experience with movies growing up, and I haven't seen them in so long. You know, outside of your work, and and, uh, <laughs> and I'm uh, feeling old. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so it was like just to get them, just to I was like, can I just put in some fake. Cigarette burns and real change is going to have it jump the gate a little bit, you know, There's some great. dust on, a, on on the optical track. And, and, and they went for it. They went for it. And, That's great. And the thought was that, you know, people who grew up on those kind of movies would love it and that the teenagers who didn't know what it was wouldn't mind. They would think it's cool. Yeah, they was like, well, what was that? <laughs> All right. Um, and, and so... Kind of along the way, I was like, I have been given this amazing gift, which was a healthy budget from a big studio with you know really powerful partners and a guaranteed wide release uh, through Universal. They just Those want the me keys to have to fun. The kingdom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was like uh, my DP and I at one point. Um, we said we felt like the valets in Ferris Bueller's Day <laughs> Right. Versus, like we're just driving this thing into the sunset and <laughs> sooner or later, somebody's going to check the mileage and we'll be in trouble, but everybody really <laughs> loved the movie. And, and uh, so it, it ended up being, I still think of that as as one of my favorite experiences, mm. uh, making a movie. And I'm so glad that I listened to them and and did it because uh, my my fear of, of the sequel of it all and everything was completely un, unwarranted in that case. And, and it was great. You're listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris.
1: Podcast One has a brand new app for you to discover the show. Find out everything about your favorite Podcast One shows, including Postmortem with Mick Garris, through the all-new Podcast One app available now in the App Store or on Google Play. Find links to articles, social media, make playlists with your favorite episodes, and connect with other fans of the show. You can even create your own polls to debate your favorite horror films. We have our own little community on there. Check out exclusive content such as behind-the-scenes photos and so much more. And if you have 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality, there's There's over a thousand videos on the app right now. It's like you're in the studio. There is no other podcast app like this. Download the all-new Podcast One app in the App Store or on Google Play. And it brings us into Stephen King land. Stephen King. So, and Netflix. Yes. Um, You know, originally, Steve and I talked about him directing uh, uh, Gerald's Game. I've heard that story. And with me producing it for him. That's the book I've most wanted to direct myself, so... I'm sorry. And uh, Uh, no, I love this. And it has been thought of as an unfilmable book. Yep. And it has proven to be filmable. And, oh, and you've done We'll see. It. Yeah. We'll yeah. see what you well, think uh, in a few months. But. When does it open?
0: Uh, they haven't given me a date yet, but I'm I'm pretty confident it'll be this year.
1: Uh, now, is this something you pursued or did somebody come to you with it?
0: Oh, I've, I've much like you, I've been chasing this for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Uh, I read it. I was 19 years old. I read it uh, for the first time. And I put it down and like the the I'd goose flesh all over my arms. I thought it was It's such an astonishing story.
1: It's so powerful. And so it's just one place and it's potent. And, and well, for the people who haven't read the book, tell us why it's an unfilmable
0: movie. (laughs) Well, the, the basic story, you know, it it centers around a woman who spends pretty much the entirety of the novel handcuffed to a bedpost, uh, quote unquote alone. (laughs) And, um, she, you know, it's, it's all in her head. It's, it's this, it's this kind of stream of consciousness as you go through her experience that gets into her memories and
1: which her by the way is a very rough experience very rough it's not just uh, being chained to a bed
0: no it's it's horrific yeah. in, in a lot of ways and there were parts of the book i couldn't continue reading i had to i had to put aside they were so upsetting and um i remember i put the book down and i thought it's brilliant and it's unfilmable Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first moved to Los Angeles, I carried a hardcover in my bag whenever I would take general meetings and anyone would ask me what my dream project was and I'd pull it out. Um, and it was either that, you know, they were familiar with the book and said it's unfilmable um, mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, that it was not available. That, that it was, right.
1: Uh, there was a there were a couple other directors who were developing it for a while. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And that fell apart.
0: It's and, and I could see why, because it it had taken me years to come up with kind of a, a mechanism that I thought would make it cinematic um, without changing, you know, the, the book. Right. And um, the temptation to make big changes in an adaptation of a story like that is huge, and I really didn't want to do that. Uh,
1: Tell me the elements of the book that drew you to it, that made you want so badly to make it into a film. What I found haunting about it was that
0: it featured one of King's, I think, most thoroughly fleshed out heroines. Um, I thought Jesse represented um, strength and vulnerability at the same time. It, it, it's it's a story about someone whose darkest moments save their life, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that in order to access them, they have to go and And relive the the worst thing the one thing they don't want to look at mm-hmm. is the key to you know to their to them having a future. I also thought it was a a beautiful and king's so good with this in in a number of his stories but a, a really lovely look at marriage right in in a very sad kind of complicated way i I've, I felt like you know it's uh it's another side to the coin that you know Lissy's story has kind of this this beautiful marriage yeah. in it. And it's like Gerald and Jesse could have been and art not Oh, it is so far seven. from yeah, that.
1: Yeah. Um, At the time, he was writing a lot of really fascinating kind of first-person female perspective books with Macy's yes. story and Gerald's Game and Rose Matter. Yes. It was a very interesting time in his literary output.
0: Well you had this this kind of streak of these amazing stories of female empowerment mm-hmm. and um and the horror of them was often born out of other people it wasn't born out of monsters you know so much and uh it was so psychologically complex um and and i I just really wanted to 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 tell that story i I identified with her so much and um it took me a very long time to figure out a way that I thought would work uh and it was it was hush that actually kind of shook it loose because hmm. uh, you know he had he had seen Oculus and liked it. I've still to this day never spoken to Stephen. Oh really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I would love to. Uh, we've emailed uh, yeah. since Gerald, but um, but he had seen Oculus and you so, will love him
1: and he will oh, love I,
0: you. I'm sure. I I, I have I, if I can you know if I can speak, I'm sure it'll be great. But um, <laughs> but he had, yeah he gave me you know. Gave me permission to try to adapt the the book, and and I did the script, and he liked the script. And he
1: knows the difference between books and movies. He knows yeah. they're not the same animal.
0: Very very well, I think. And and um, but we couldn't find anyone who would make the movie, and that was that was always the thing was they were like, look, this is this is you know this is hard material. It
1: is, um, and it's nothing like what you've done before. No,
0: not at all, and and nothing like I could, we had a hard time just pointing to other films. That I could point at and be like, it'll be kind of like this. We I didn't can't imagine anything.
1: what that would be. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and so uh, nobody would do it on the on the studio level, right? Um, and uh, then it it just kind of went away, and I was heartbroken, and I thought like, I'll never, I'll never get to get get back to it. And he saw Hush and tweeted about it. Uh-huh. And I just saw that because I follow him on Twitter. The, the, <laughs> yeah, the tweet popped up and I made this really high-pitched noise and kind of fell to the ground. I was like, oh yeah. And and um and because he had liked Hush so much, uh we I was like, can we just ask one more time about Gerald's game and see if there's anything anything to be done? Um and he was in favor of it in Netflix having you know, Hush had performed very well for them. I don't know how well, because they're all, you know. They don't so, tell, but secret. they yeah. know how many. They know how, it, and it apparently went well, so they were like, great, what else, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, the thing I'd want to do, I've wanted to do for half my life, is this. Here's the script.
1: And, and it's not an book. expensive movie to make.
0: No, it's not. And it was like, it's contained. <laughs> um, <laughs> All good selling yeah. points. It's got Stephen King's name on it. It's, it's, yes. it's incredibly castable if you can find an actress <laughs> A bold brave enough to is. do it. And, um and I think it could be unlike anything that, you know, anything that I've seen and, uh, and Netflix being as brave as they are, we just like great. Yeah. And Trevor and I looked at each other and it was like, we need to do this right now, like before anything changes. Uh, and so we rushed into that at, on the heels of Ouija and, uh, shot it. Yep. Shot it last fall. Um, uh, Carla Gugino is Jesse and it's, I, I believe the performance of her career. Um, Bruce greenwood, uh, who was uh, Stephen's uh recommendation gerald yeah that's great um and uh, he's he's amazing and and the movie uh, we we delivered it this spring uh, i'm
1: I've never been prouder of a film um, i can't wait to see it. this is something i've been dying to see it i i, I i'm me too actually, and it was funny because <laughs> i I
0: went to the um final playback after we finished the mix, and like we we'd been sitting there agonizing over the mix you know for weeks at that point and we sat back to finally do full playback and I sat there and it kind of occurred to me and I turned to, the, uh, to my sound team and it was like, thank you guys for being here I've been waiting to watch this movie for <laughs> half my life and I'm about to sit here wow. and watch Gerald's Game. The
1: first playback Yeah,
0: and, and it was awesome it was just such a like it, My any connection I, I felt with it uh, kind of was completely shoved aside and I watched it as a King fan right, and that was awesome
1: it's an amazing experience to be able to have put something together, with a great team that came from something you loved. You know, I've, I've obviously had the King experience as well, and to to sit back You've had and watch so much of the King experience, like <laughs> many could, times. Yeah, I think it's eight or nine. But wow! But um, to be able to watch something, and especially to have it receive, you know, the stand was fifty million people at night watched it, and it went up each of the four nights, and it was when. Uh, you know, the message boards were new online and to see the East Coast people watching, doing their online, hey, this is really good and, and getting all that. And, and to, to have that valedictory dance that I know you're going to have with this. This kind of brings full circle for me because I started my career writing television for Steven Spielberg <laughs> and you are now doing the haunting. Um, with Steven Spielberg as a series for Netflix once again. Um, King and I and Spielberg were going to do Rose Red, which is very much a haunting inspired story. We were going to do it as a $40 million feature after The Stand. It was going to be the next thing for me and for King and in this case Spielberg. Spielberg and King did not agree a lot on what it was and, and Spielberg wanted something to be... Rose Red had a lot of things that were just about how cool the spooky scenes were. They weren't necessarily narratively that well linked together. Mm -hmm. And Spielberg said that that was his objection. Interestingly, they decided not to do it. There's an 800-pound gorilla on either side, and I'm the 50-pound chimp in the middle. (laughs) And it was a a bit of a tug of war. But um, then... Spielberg produced The Haunting as a feature with Jan de Bont directing. It was exactly what he said he didn't like about Rose Red. Right. You know, it, it was not narratively hung together. The original haunting is Robert one, Weiser, of, yeah. Robert, one of the great horror films that doesn't spill a drop of blood, anything of all time. It's terrifying.
0: It shows you nothing.
1: It shows you nothing. nothing. The 10 millimeter yeah. lens is used so brilliantly in that film. And, uh, you are going you're making a series for Netflix from the Haunting. so tell me your take <laughs> uh,
0: in, in in as much as I can a lot of it's actually uh locked up um a lot of it I can't talk about
1: that's okay
0: yeah uh, I, I i very much like i think both both Stevens um you know this was a book that was very formative for me as a kid and and I know it had such an impact on King and Spielberg as well you know uh, it's it's near and dear you know uh to him in a, in a very real way. Uh and to me, and, and I had my opinions about the Jan movie, which I thought kind of went so far uh in in a different direction than the, the classic, uh which scared you so much with was, was showing you so little. And then this one showed you so much. Yeah, it was so
1: much about the, so the much. effects. And, yeah. And, and and not there's so much humanity in the in the book oh, and yes. in the original movie. It's really about you know, what's curdling inside a, a repressed woman.
0: Yeah, well, and and how you can look at it, it, there's so many wonderful ways to read it, and you can look at it as a wonderful haunted house thing, or you can look at it as the story of a fragile woman who's losing her mind. You can look at it as a, a blend of both, you know. Um, and that's the place we're coming from with it, is it, what attracted me to it is, I've always viewed it as kind of, you know, the, the grand you know the the grandfather of psychological horror and haunted houses and what made the haunting what it was wasn't the scary stuff you know you do or don't see in the house or the history although the history of hill house is fascinating in, in its own right um but it was those it was it was the characters in, that inhabited it um for that short amount of time and what it brought out of them um and so one of the questions I had when because they they had approached me with this and and my first question was knowing the book as well as I knew it how do you get ten hours out of so
1: that's what it's book? going to be it's ten episodes
0: it is it's it's ten episodes and uh, and we're having a hard time fitting everything in <laughs> that we're doing <laughs> I'm uh, not so,
1: surprised
0: um, but it's uh, it's definitely um, it's definitely a different take. Uh, and there's a certain amount of of uh, expanding that world to kind of uh, to to justify this this longer format. Um, but it's been very, I think, critical to me and to Amblin um, and uh, its Paramount TV and, and Netflix altogether um, that this is true to you know the spirit of Shirley
1: Jackson, so to speak. Yeah,
0: and uh, and Shirley's, you know, I, I think one of the She's under celebrated I think for for her contributions to the to lottery and the, lottery the and, yeah uh, and we've always lived in the castle and you know it's um, I, I think this is a chance to, to for me to to play in a world that I love, which is you know in that world of, of Robert wise's film which was so terrifying for me um, but also to to be able to take a lot of the themes um, from Shirley's books and, and from Shirley's life itself, which is its own, in its own right, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, and to, and to kind of create this new story that I I think is going to satisfy all the fans of, of the haunting. Um, but it, it, definitely is its own animal. And so we're, we're keeping a lot of the details under wraps for now, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's also my first, uh, first time in television, which is a, a very intimidating and awesome new thing.
1: But it's a different animal than what it used to be. And television offers so much greatness now.
0: Oh, I think we're in, we're in this really, you know, wonderful age for TV. And, and what I I really wanted to try to get into television because the, the chance to tell these long stories and really, really get, uh, get to explore these characters over this amount of time is just amazing. And, um, I look at it as a 10 hour movie and, you know the great thing about Netflix is it's essentially released like one. Right, you can sit you down binge. and just watch the whole yeah. thing, um, which I love. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I'm. I, I wish I so wish I could talk about it more because uh, <laughs> it's really cool. Maybe offline we can. Yeah, we can we can get into all of it.
1: Definitely. But, uh, well, yeah. I am appropriately teased and uh, I'm really glad to follow your career and see all these things happening and and watch what comes next and I so appreciate you coming and sharing all your stories with us and let's do more
0: absolutely and it's been such a pleasure for me um I've loved your work for okay. for, for, for my my whole life thank and, you and so much. it's it's an honor to uh, to be sitting and talking to
1: you well likewise and uh, we'll have a mutual appreciation society yes sir right, thanks so much for being with us thank you you can see a bunch of my old interviews from as early as 1970 Seventy-nine from the Z Channel Fantasy Film Festival series and the Fearnet version of Postmortem that we did a few years ago for television at Interviews.com and you can reach us via Twitter at PostmortemMG.
0: Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.